In seventh grade, I went to Scott County Middle School, and at the end of the year, we had a school assembly where they gave out awards for whoever was the best in each subject. So like for English, there was a sixth grade winner, a seventh grade winner, and an eighth grade winner. Back in the 90s, uh, we didn't believe in participation trophies. There was only one clear winner, and um, wow, okay, we're excited. If y'all want more participation trophy stuff, I got all kinds of material on that. Um, this is no surprise to anyone in this room, um, but I was not eligible for any of those awards. You know, my parents were not sitting out in the crowd with their cameras ready to take a picture. In fact, my parents didn't even show up because there was no chance that I was going to win one of these awards. This is how dumb I was in seventh grade. Um, in seventh grade in shop class, we had this big project where we got to make a clock. And as soon as I heard about it, I knew exactly what kind of clock I was going to make. I actually upgraded and paid for the walnut wood. You know, I bought the walnut wood. You glue it all together like a big butcher block. You put it in this press. You leave it until it, 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 it fixates to each other. Then you take it through a planer. Then you sand it down. And then on this big block of wood, I rode out Indiana. Now, I was born in Indiana. Indiana. I was always been a big Indiana basketball fan. So I, I built this clock. It said Indiana. And then I got to go get on a bandsaw. If you don't know what a bandsaw is, it's one of these saws that just goes over and over. I've never been on one in my life. In seventh grade, no experience. I'm up there cutting these tight edges to spell out the word Indiana. And then afterwards, I spent weeks sanding on this every single day, making sure everything was smooth. And when it was finally all smooth, then I took a wood burner and I outlined everything just correctly. And then up the eye, I wrote Hoosiers. Then I put six coats of polyurethane on it until it was really shiny and it looked nice. And then we hollowed out the D where the clock went, I put the AA battery in it, worked perfect. This thing was the, my most valuable possession. I'd never worked so hard on something in my whole life. I left class that day and I went to my next class, which was English class at Miss Russell's room. And I said, look, Miss Russell, at my clock. And she said, in Dana. I said, no, no, it's Indiana. She said, buddy, you're missing a vowel. Six weeks, I looked at this every single day for hours and had no idea I was missing an eye. The only thing that makes me feel better is neither did my shop teacher, not one time. I just immediately threw it in the trash. If there's one thing I could have back in life, I wish I had the Indana clock back. I really wish I had it. So I was not up for any of these awards in the award ceremony. It came time for the computer award. Mr. Duguid, he gets up and he announces the eighth grade winner. He says, the eighth grade winner for the computer award goes to, and he announces some kid. That kid went, wow. You know, he was excited. <laughs> Took all of his floppy disk and put them in his backpack and ran out there. <laughs> then he says, and the seventh grade computer award goes to, and he announced another eighth grader. And all the kids go, that's an eighth grader. And he played it off like he knew that. He goes, I know, I'm just joking. He said, the seventh grade computer award goes to, and he paused, and I just stood up, you know, like to make all my friends laugh. And I think that was the only name he could think of. And he said, Andrew Brown. And everybody was like, what? <laughs> I walked all the way up there. I had a B minus in that class. We didn't even own a computer at our house. I walked up and I looked at Mr. Duguid like, what are you doing? And he looked at me like, take the trophy. And so, <laughs> 1992, Scott County Middle School, seventh grade computer award winner, 
Andrew Brown. And standing there, I knew like I did not deserve this award. This did not really belong to me. I've had this same sense my whole life following Christ, this sense of, man, I don't deserve this. Like when I think about being a son of God, that God didn't have to, but he chose to adopt me into his family. There's just something inside of me that just knows, man, I do not deserve this because I know who I am and, and what I've done. I know how unfaithful I've been, yet God continues to choose me and it's just, it's overwhelming to me that I'm not some second-class citizen, that I'm not just a servant of God, but that I'm his, I'm his son. In fact, Jesus gave me his righteousness. I will never be more righteous than I am right now in this moment. And when I think about that, they just have this sense of, man, I don't deserve this. But the reality is if you have put your faith in Christ, you are a son and daughter of God. You belong to the Father and he loves you. He holds nothing against you. In fact, that's what 1 John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that's just what we are. Regardless if I feel like it or not, regardless if I deserve it or not, and I don't deserve it, I am a child of God. I am the 1992 Scott County Middle School, seventh grade computer award winner. The, the, the trophy is at my parents' house. You can't take that from me. That is written down in history. And the truth is, you can't take this away from us. We are children of God. And man, I'm just overwhelmed by the love and goodness of God. Think about yourself, what you've done and where you've been and how unfaithful you've been. Yet God calls us his kids and we're loved by God. Then there's another part that I sometimes I think we don't also feel the weight of. We understand the love of God and the grace and the forgiveness that he extends. But then there's something else that happens when we put our faith in Christ. We then become a part of our family business. We all of a sudden become representatives of God. We are image bearers of who the Father is. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us. And now we are the representation of who Christ is to the world. That God is looking at me and you and saying, you are my plan to change your community. And man, there's just weight to that that we're okay with coming to church and being good people. And, and, and we like the fact that we've been forgiven by God, but the weight of that God is counting on us, that we become partners with God in this mission, that his plan has always been people. That just feels heavy. In fact, Paul says it this way. We therefore are Christ ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Here's the message. Be reconciled to God. Paul says, do you understand your responsibility? You're an ambassador. You are an official representative of God. That God is looking for you to go and represent his interest on his behalf and speak the things that he wants you to say to bring hope and healing to your community. This is our responsibility. We are God's plan to change the world. 
processes before creation, God understood that man would walk away and do their own thing. And before the creation of the world, he already set a plan in motion. God was already chasing after us before we were even running away. And Jesus came into the world and he took our punishment for us and he extends his grace and his righteousness and he gives it to us as a gift. And then his hope was that the whole world would know the love and the goodness of God. And he could have any plan. He could think of anything. He had all of creation to think of it. And what he thought of was us. That's not the best idea. I mean, look around the room. This is God's plan to change our community. This is as good as God has this is his plan often. I wonder, God, why'd you pick me? There, there's gotta be something better than me leading this church. There's gotta be a better idea than a community of people called the church to represent you to the world. Can't there be something better than this? This can't be the best plan. You know, when we adopted our son Jude, we, we had to spend two, or two months in Uganda there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through. One of the biggest being that you had to get a passport for him. We finally got his passport. We got the green light from the U.S. Embassy to go home. There was one final step. If a child has a birth parent still living, they have the opportunity to come back and change their mind at the last moment. They had to come to the U.S. Embassy and say, hey, yeah, I, do not, I can't take care of this kid. Now, when our son Jude was born, his birth mother discarded him and threw him in the trash. And at this point, she was living eight hours away. And so Friday, we get the news that on Tuesday, we have an appointment at the U.S. Embassy. And if she says, yeah, I'm fine with this, then we were able to leave and finally get home. And so I said to our attorney and the person who had been hosting us, I said, so how are we going to make sure that she shows up? And they said, well, she doesn't have a cell phone, but we'll call her neighbor. We have their number and we'll tell her just to get on a bus and travel eight hours and then we'll reimburse her. And I said, well, what if she doesn't show up? She's made bad decisions in the past. Like what does she have to gain by showing up to this appointment? I was like, this has got to be a better idea than just that. So I said to my friend Gilbert, who drove us around, I said, Gilbert, how much would you charge me to go pick her up, make sure she gets in the car and bring her here because we really want to go home. And in reality, whatever he said, whatever amount of money I was going to say yes to because I was not okay with that plan. And that's what we did. And often I think, man, there's got to be a better plan. But there's not one. Just, just feel the weight and gravity of this. God created you to do something for him. There are people that he wants to use you to impact and express the love and goodness of God to. There are problems that exist in our community that God is looking to you and no one else to solve. This is what we, we believe. Without God, we cannot. Some of the things that God is asking us to do is just bigger than us. To be an open-handed, releasing church, a church that plants churches and sends people to, to go to different communities, to start these communities of faith that will change communities around them. That's just bigger than us. The idea of bringing hope and healing to a generation that's struggling with loneliness and anxiety and fear. I have no idea how to do that. When I think about all the brokenness that exists in our community, right outside these walls, and God is looking to the church to be the agent of change, that is just so much bigger than us. And we know this, without God, we cannot. 
That's one of the reasons tonight as a, as a church we're saying, hey, let's come together and pray and worship because we recognize the thing that God is asking us to do is so big. But this is also true. Without us, he will not. The story of the church is the story of always God using people. When we think about the fact that if we choose to say no, if we choose to be selfish, if we choose to bury and hide our gifts and say, I have nothing to offer, that our community suffers because of it, because there is no plan B. God always uses people. In fact, Paul says it this way. He says that his intent was that now through the church, not an hour on Sunday, not a building, but a community of people, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known this was his plan from the very beginning. And when we think about the brokenness around us, we think about the people who do not know the love and goodness of God. And it is the responsibility of the people sitting in this room to be the hands and feet of Christ. And if we choose to say no, if we choose to be selfish, if we choose to continue to go down the path that we've been going down, there are consequences to that. Paul reasons with us in this way. He says, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one that they've not heard about? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How are people gonna find out? God always uses people. Without God, we cannot, but without us, he will not. You know, prayer is a really strange concept that somehow when we pray and we talk to God, that our faith moves the heart of God. Why would God be concerned at all about what we think or what we desire or what we want? Isn't prayer a strange thing? I mean, really our prayer should be God, I don't know. You're God. And yet he says things to us like, hey, pray with faith and believe and it will be done. In fact, in James, it makes this statement. You do not have because you don't ask God. Process this with me. There are things that God would do or is willing to do or wants to do through us, but because we don't ask, God doesn't respond because God always partners with people and there's weight and there's gravity to this. When we think about the things that God has asked us to do, we have a choice of saying, yeah, I don't wanna do it. I kinda like life the way it is. I don't wanna be uncomfortable. I kinda like this model where we just show up at church on Sunday, we sing some songs, we hear a decent sermon, we're nice, and we just do it over and over again. The thought of us having responsibility of being the representation of Christ to the world, I'm not interested in that. That makes me feel uncomfortable. And what Paul would say is, yeah, when we choose that path, people don't experience the love and goodness of God. Things don't change. Communities stay the same way. You know, a better question other than what would happen if we say no, a better question is, what if we say yes? What if every one of us said yes, that God, whatever it is that you want me to do, I'll do it. 
however you want me to participate in bringing your kingdom to this community? The answer is yes. What if we changed our mindset and quit thinking about a church as a building or an hour on Sunday, but we started seeing ourselves as the church, people full of the Holy Spirit. And when you walk into the room, the church shows up. A representative of Christ showed up in the room. And we started living intentionally and thinking about our neighbor and our community. And when we see brokenness, instead of running from it, we move towards it. What if the church said yes? How incredible could this community be? What kind of change could take place? Think of all the students who could find hope and healing if the church would just say, yes, there is no plan B. We either do what God tells us to do and we get to see God work in supernatural ways or we say no and God is unwilling without the obedience of people. In fact, Paul says it this way. We are co-workers in God's service, we are working hand in hand with Jesus and hand in hand with God that he sees us as a partnership, that we're God's field and we're God's building. This is who we are. God is looking to each one of us. What if we all said yes with everything God asked us to do, no matter how uncomfortable it made us feel, no matter the sacrifice, if we said yes, what could God do through a, a community of obedient people? You know, the story of, of Grace Christian is a story of people saying yes. The, the success we've had, the impact that we've had, over the last 35 years is because there have been people along the way who said yes to the things that God was asking them to do. My dad planted this church in 1987, but I believe the story of our church began back in 1971. When my dad was a freshman at college, he went away to college on a basketball scholarship and every other basketball player roomed with another athlete except my dad. He got paired to stay in a room with a, a young man studying to be a Baptist minister. And at this point, my dad, being a child of the 60s, was far away from God, smoking dope. God wasn't on his radar. And yet there was this young man who started praying for my dad and loving my dad, He'd do his laundry for him, clean up after him, always kind to him. And then at night when the lights were off, he would crawl up in his bed on his knees and out loud so my dad could hear it. He would pray, God, save Gary Brown. That's weird. <laughs> you're a freshman at college, away from your family for the first time, and your roommate is praying out loud for you by name. And my dad let it go for a while, and then eventually he said, hey, man, you got to cut that out. That is a little bit weird for me. And this young man said, Gary, if you'll go to church with me one time, I'll quit praying for you out loud. And my dad went to church one time and he gave his life to Christ. Think about how different my life would be if he wouldn't have said yes. If that young man wasn't praying for my dad and loving on my dad, I don't know if this church would exist. It always starts with someone saying yes. After my dad planted the church in, in 1987, we grew through several little temporary places for the first couple years. Then a property became available over on Gano Avenue. A church had met there and they were selling their property and they'd built a new building. And 
remember my parents going and looking at it and, and asking questions. They wanted $250,000 for it in, in the late 80s. At the time, banks required about 10% down. They needed $25,000 down. And the church just didn't have it. My parents had really paid for everything. My mom was a nurse. My dad, prior to going into ministry, was a high school basketball coach and a teacher. And so he was teaching again at Scott County. They were paying our bills at the house. They were paying the bills of the church. And $25,000 might as well have been a million dollars at that point. And one day, my grandfather showed up at the house. My mom's dad, Papa Ned, one of the best men I've ever known. And he said to my parents, God's asked me to do something. I want to give you the $25,000 to buy that building. And he said, yes, it's a lot of money in the late 80s. I think about that building. That's really where our church had its first home. And we started growing and started putting roots down. It was where I gave my life to Christ. It's where I got baptized. It's where I preached my first sermon. And I'm thankful that my grandfather said yes when God laid something on his heart. It's the story of our church. All along, people saying yes. Some of our, our very first members were a couple named Danny and Ada McFarlane. Danny and Ada were never able to have kids. Um, their life was this church. They cleaned the building. They served. They were just, they were the best. In 1999, Ada got cancer and, um, and passed away. I mean, our church grieved. It was such a sad moment for our church. It was such a huge part of who we were. And I remember the night she, she passed away. My dad said, Andrew, I want you to stay with Danny. And Danny was a, a, an odd guy. Honestly, probably went undiagnosed with something on the spectrum. I mean, Danny was just a, he was an odd guy. I remember sitting over at Danny's house until about two o'clock in the morning and just looking through pictures of Ada. So after Danny got tired and went to bed, I went and laid out on the couch and fell asleep. And about six o'clock in the morning, Danny walks in, doesn't say a word to me. He walks in the living room. He walks straight to the TV, turns the TV on. He puts a VHS tape in with worship music playing. Danny used to always sit right here and Danny loved to worship God. Danny put his hands in there like this and he would just dance. He just loved to worship God. Danny doesn't say a word. He puts on a VHS tape the morning after his wife passed away. He gets about three foot from the TV and Danny... He just starts worshiping. And I just sat there on the couch like, man, this is one of the strangest things I've ever been a part of. <laughs> and Danny turned around, looked at me, goes, are you just going to sit there? I said, no, sir. I went up and I stood beside Danny and we just worshiped God together. <laughs> and Danny loved this church. He just wanted people to know Jesus. I could never beat Danny to church. This morning, I got here before six o'clock. I would not have beat Danny. He would get here in the morning. He'd get the thermostat set, make sure all the lights were on, doors unlocked, make communion, fix chairs. Danny just, he would do all the things that nobody noticed. About a decade ago, Danny got sick and had to go have surgery. The doctors told Danny, go home, take it easy for a little bit. Instead, Danny went home and dug a hole for his mailbox and started bleeding internally. He flew him to Louisville and Danny passed away. This man who loved this church and served and said yes to everything God ever asked him to do. And for months, stuff wasn't getting done. We come back in here and the thermostat was still on and lights were left on, doors weren't locked and nobody knew how to order communion because for years, nobody understood all the things that Danny did to serve in this church. He just always said yes to whatever it was that God wanted him to do. And I think about the impact a local church could have on a community. It's because of people like Danny and Ada who just said, I'll say yes. 
and I'll serve. And Danny never stood on the stage. He never held a microphone. He loved being in the back, in the behind the scenes because he just wanted to serve. How does a church have influences from every single person saying, I'll say yes to the thing that God asked me to do? One day Jesus is walking along and this man approached Jesus because I think he understood that Jesus was the only person that could really answer the question that was, was on his heart. And everyone knew who this man was. The Bible describes him, says he was, he was young and he had a, a lot of influence. People respected him and listened to him when he spoke. He had made a lot of money even for a young man. And he came to Jesus with this important question. He said, what do I have to do to discover life? What do I have to do to discover eternal life? There was something inside him, like, man, I've been successful. I have all this stuff, but there's still something else that I'm longing for. And Jesus said, you got to be faithful. you got to obey the commandments. And he said, I've done that. I am faithful. But there's still something that I'm looking for. And I love Jesus' response. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. Jesus said, man, I love this guy. This is who I've been looking for right here. He looked at him and he loved him. He says, one thing you lack. He said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you're gonna have treasures in heaven. This is what you're searching for, right? And he said, then why don't you come and, and follow me? And Jesus was in the stage of his ministry where he was looking for people that he could start this new movement called the church and what he was saying to this young man, I've been looking for someone like you. Come on, follow me. Let's go change the world. I'm gonna use you to, to start this new movement called the church. This was everything this man had been looking for. He was looking for something greater, something more important, something more than he was currently experiencing. But the response is painful says, at this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. See, Jesus was inviting him into something great, but there was great sacrifice involved. And this is true for all of us. Whenever God invites us into something great, it always requires great sacrifice by his people. And I don't know the rest of this man's story. My guess is he went on and he had a successful business and Seemed like he was a good person and a lot of people liked him. But he missed out on being a part of a small group of people who changed the world because he was unwilling to sacrifice. And I know what God is calling me personally to do. I know what he's asking us to, as a church to do. And it's just, it's bigger than us. When I think about what God has asked us to do, I'm like, God, I don't know how to do that. I know how to grow a church. I don't know how to multiply churches. I don't know if it's even possible for us to plant a church every other year. God, I see the pain that's in this generation, and I want to be a part of bringing hope and healing, but I honestly, God, I don't know if I'm equipped to do that, and if as a church, we're equipped to do that. But yet God is asking and what he says to us, if, if we're willing, if we say yes, he will fill us with the Holy Spirit and give us the power to do the things that he's called us to do. You know, this, this past summer, we were talking as a leadership and 
dreaming about all these things, expanding facilities so it would reflect our heart. It's not about building a building. It's about being a church that sees our community seven days a week, not just for an hour on Sunday. And we were dreaming about this, and we knew there was a large cost associated with that. And honestly, in those moments, you know, that's when I kind of want to hold things a little bit tighter. It's like, man, we need every extra penny we have. And yet, if you've been a part of this church, you know, last year we gave away more money than we've ever given away. So we just said, no, we're going to trust God and we're going to be generous and open-handed through all of it. And it was in one of those conversations that one of our, our leaders said, hey, before we build a gym, what if we gave one away? You know, we have a partnership with, uh, with Toto Church in Uganda. There's an incredible work there. Um, they care for thousands of orphans. What they do is they find an abandoned woman or a widow, and they partner her with, with eight children who she becomes a mother to. And they build a home for the nine of them, and then they build these homes in pods of nine because Afri Africa is so communal. They provide education for the kids all the way up through through college. It's the most incredible thing I've ever seen with my own eyes, how they care for these kids. These kids are not up for adoption. They would say, hey, we're raising up the next generation of leaders that's going to change our nation. One of the challenges they have is there's a lack of proximity to, to men and fathers. They get mothers and there's teachers who are often ladies, not a lot of men, and everybody needs a dad. And so they said, what if we did something through sports? And because it's Africa, they started a soccer program and hundreds of kids participate in, and men from the church come in and they become fathers to these kids. But also in the nation of Africa, basketball is growing. And so right before COVID, I went over with a group of my friends. Many of them played basketball, coached basketball. We went and did a basketball camp out on this outdoor court in one of the children's villages. Two goals, different heights, and hundreds of kids showed up. And one of our leaders said, hey, what if before we build a gym, we give a gym away? What if we build a gym for those orphans? I'll tell you what I love about the leadership of our church. Before we decided we were going to do one for ourselves, we made the commitment last year. We're building a gym in Uganda for, for orphans so they can be around men who can become fathers. So part of this, of what we're doing, is we're saying yes, and we're going to be generous throughout all of it. In fact, uh, Pastor Eddie uh, wanted to thank you personally, so here's Pastor Eddie. Hello, Grace Christian. My name is Eddie, and on behalf of Watoto Church, I want to say thank you so much for your partnership with us in raising Uganda's most vulnerable children. Over the years, you have sent your teams to Uganda to bless our children, but also the children's choirs have been at your church, and they were blessed being with you. Now, Pastor Andrew and his family are great friends of ours, and we love having them here in Uganda. And on their last visit, they came with a wonderful piece of news. They told us, you had decided to bless Watoro by building our children a gym to help raise amazing sportsmen and women. Thank you, Grace family, for your generosity towards our children. We pray that God will bless your endeavors to reach your communities with the love of Jesus. God bless you. So now it's our turn um, to say yes. To say yes to things that God's calling us to do individually, 
And that'd be one of my requests that every family would start praying, God, what is it that you want us to do? How do you want us to serve? What part do you want us to play in the mission here at Grace? The mission to bring God's kingdom to our community? Because there's something more than just sitting in a chair on Sundays. There's something that God wants you to do. There are people that God wants you to reach. It's also our opportunity as a church to say, we're gonna say yes and, and financially give and support the vision that God has given us. In fact, next week, we're calling it Commitment Sunday. We're gonna ask that everybody that calls Grace their home church to pray about the commitment that you wanna make to this new shift campaign. We're gonna ask you to consider giving a gift over a three-year period. Saying, hey, as a family, this is what we think we can give above and beyond what we already normally give to fund the ministry that God has called us to start here at Grace. And I'll let you know, we're gonna do this in a way that's honoring of God and honoring of our culture. Um, there's gonna be nobody twisting anybody's arm. I think it's my responsibility and our leadership's responsibility to cast vision. It's not my job to make anybody feel pressure or guilty. What I would say is I want every family to pray about the number that God has for you. I know we've been having those conversations in our home. And, and I'm gonna ask that every family would consider giving the biggest gift that they've ever given to ministry because I believe what God is asking us to do it matters. And next Sunday as a church, we're gonna make those commitments together and we're gonna fund the mission that God has given us. And as I encouraged you last week, I'm gonna encourage you again, do this as a family. Just this week, sat down with our kids and we said, hey, we wanna be the most generous we've ever been, which means we're all gonna to have to sacrifice. We started going around, hey, what, what would you be willing to give up over the next couple of years? Got to Jude, who's 10. I said, Jude, what do, you, what do you think, man? Could you give up Disney Plus? And he said, I'm gonna have to pray about that one, Dad. So, <laughs> prayer's going on in our home right now. That's what I ask of all of us. Here's what I know about this church. Over and over again, I've watched people step up and say, man, I just wanna be a part. I wanna be a part of what God's doing. And we're gonna do it again next week. We're gonna see God bring transformation and healing and wholeness to our community because of it. Without God, we cannot. Without us, he will not. There is no plan B. It's time for us to be the church. Let's pray together. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for letting us be your sons and daughters giving us your, your righteousness and your holiness. Thank you for trusting us enough to be a part of the family business that we get to represent you. God, just the thought of that, we're reminded we can't do it without you. We need the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through each one of us. God, would you use us? Would you use our yes to impact this community? God, this week as we pray as families about where you're calling us to serve and what you're calling us to do and what you're calling us to give, you'd speak clearly to us. God, as we sacrifice, we believe you do great things when people say yes. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.